How often do you introduce yourself as a Christian? I mean, if we have certain letters like DR or REV or CAPT, if we've got those in front of our name, we make sure the other person knows it, especially if we think it'll move things along. When we use these letters, though, it's about us. It's about our accomplishments. There are other words, though, addendums to our name. I'm the class of 78. I used to be a member here. I'm Mitch's mom. These words are not about us, but our connection with whoever we identified with. And it is that connection that we hope will move things along. When you drive down the H1, you see flags and stickers proudly displayed on cars, so you know that that person is from Samoa, or that they went to Punahou, or that they are Packers fans. I was following a truck the other day, and by the way, I know that these people were amazingly special. Perhaps some of the most loving, forgiving people on the entire island. How did I know that? Because on the driver's side, there it was, a Texas A&M Aggie sticker. And on the passenger side, a Texas Longhorn sticker. I'm just amazed that they're still together, and obviously it's by grace. Rarely does someone tell me they're a Christian unless they know I'm a pastor. I can't even think of the last time that somebody walked up to me and said, Hi, my name's Bob and I'm a Christian. Now, they might have a cross around their neck. They might have earrings and crosses. They might have a symbol of faith, the sign of a fish or something else on a book, on their vehicle, on something else that they carry around with them. But rarely do they walk up and say, My name is and I'm a Christian. There are three ways to look at being a Christian, and they're not necessarily complementary. That's with the E, not the I. To some, being a Christian is about an organization. It's the church. They were or are a member of a specific congregation, church body, or something that they identify as that organization. To others, being a Christian is about doing something. It's all those commandments, those rules, those regulations. And to still others, it's about a person, Jesus. And the reason I say they're not necessarily complementary is because if you put either of the first two, or especially both of them, before the third one, in other words, if you put organization and practice above Jesus, you got a problem. And if you take Jesus, the third one, and put it and exclude the other two, the organization and the practice, you also have a problem. Which brings us to the gospel lesson where Jesus says, I have called you friends because I've made known everything to you that I heard from my Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. When we are young or new to the faith, Jesus is a unicorn who grants our wishes. We ask him for all the stuff we want, and then we try really, really hard to be good enough that he'll give it to us. Sounds more like Santa Claus in Christmas, but it is the way a lot of people think about Jesus. The problem is, if this is how Jesus works, you lose, no matter what. If you get what you ask for, you know it's because you earned it, because you were so good that Jesus didn't have a choice but to give it to you. And if you don't get what you asked for, either Jesus is being mean, or you didn't have enough faith, or you didn't work hard enough. It doesn't look good either way. You know, the Bible was given to us as a whole, not a bunch of individual verses. Living our life one verse at a time can be dangerous. 
For those of you who remember the TV show MASH, there was an episode where this bomb had fallen into the compound and they didn't have time to get a bomb disposal unit out there. And so the surgeons were going to defuse it and they were on the radio with someone who was giving them very specific instructions and they would give the instruction, the instruction would be repeated and then it would be carried out. Right up until they said, cut the red wire and you hear this loud snip and then the person on the radio says, after you cut the blue wire. Fortunately, it was only a CIA propaganda bomb and the only damage was leaflets everywhere in the camp. If we take one verse and do not consider the immediate context, in fact, the context of the entire Bible, we risk heading off down a road that can literally be a dead end. We wind up snipping the red wire when we were supposed to do it after we snipped the blue wire. During the pandemic, and even more now that we're starting down this long driveway that's leading us back to whatever's going to be normal. You know, there's a lot of people who have used various verses and who are still using those verses, many of which were biblical commands as the reason that they are defying the emergency orders. And they would quote these verses as proof as to why they or their congregation must do something or must not do something. And the verses were all proper verses. There's no doubt about it. They're definitely in the Bible. But allow me to read a section from the book of Ecclesiastes. And by the way, this book was written by the one that the Bible says, and I quote, God gave Solomon wisdom, exceedingly deep insight and understanding beyond measure like the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than that of all the men of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what Solomon would like us to know. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And by the way, if you're as old as I am and you heard Roger McGuinn's 12-string guitar playing in the background and the birds singing harmony, I completely understand. I don't know what life was like for Solomon, except like us, he struggled to make sense of everything. And these words, these words are amazing. There is a time for everything, and seen in the proper light, we understand giving something up. Even something, by the way, that is precious, even something that is commanded. If we give it up because it is safe, because it is necessary, or because we've become too addicted to it and we've lost what its real purpose is, well, that can bring about new insights, new respect, a new way of looking at it that actually makes it better rather than worse. The old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder, just might have something to teach us. Our lesson from Acts a few weeks ago, where the newly baptized and gathered disciples sell their possessions and give the money to the church, and the church looked after those who, and I quote, who had a need, that should have caused a lump in your throat, should have caused your heart to skip a beat, could have caused you to become very, very anxious. See, if we're going to be real Christians, that sounds like something that we really need to do. And don't forget tithing, which, by the way, if you study it, it's not actually 10% of your income, but it's actually 10% of all your possessions. In other words, every year you add up all your possessions, everything you own, everything you have, and you give 10%. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. 
See, I always love it when someone comes to me and says, I represent such and such a company, and if you will give me access to all the people in your church so that I can sell them something, I'm going to give you 10% of my profit. Oh, it sounds so tithely, that 10% number, and how much they're going to be helping the church. And yet, it's not about helping the church. It's about helping them. Or somebody comes along and says, you know what, if you just prove your faith, if you prove to God that you have faith, He will heal you or give you whatever you want. Doesn't God know if I have faith? I mean, why should I have to prove to God I have faith? Why should I have to prove it to some pastor or somebody else that I have faith? I think God already knows. Do you see why I get a little nervous about us defining what a Christian is and what a Christian isn't? One verse at a time. As faith and life take shape under the cross, which is by its very bloody and dark nature a very uncomfortable place to be, a wonderful thing takes place if we allow it to. You see, it's one thing to think of Jesus as a magical genie in a bottle who exists to grant us our three wishes or a magical unicorn that'll do whatever we want. It's another to look up at his beaten and bloody face, wearing a crown of thorns instead of that golden tiara that he deserves. And just before he dies, turning to him and saying, look, I've been a good little boy or girl, so I really think I deserve the following. I've got this list. It's alphabetized. Do you think you can get all me these things before you breathe your last and say it's finished? See, to discover life is more than just stuff. And by the way, stuff is defined as anything we think we need in order to be happy. It's actually a beautiful gift. When Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you, there are two ways to take that. Jesus, I've made you number one, so now give me everything I want. Or Jesus, you're number one. Help me know what I truly need in order to live a life that brings honor and glory to you. Not just the stuff that I want and think will make me happy, which has never worked in the past. I don't know why I think it'll work in the future. Growing up, I was the son of a carpenter, and so people had an expectation that I knew which end of the hammer to use. My dad was the son of a sharecropper, although by the time he was old enough to work in the fields, my family had packed up and left Coon Island, Missouri, and had moved to Denver. And then my grandfather had taken off and gone to Alaska and all sorts of other places, trying to find any type of work during the Great Depression. My mom... My mom was the daughter of a milkman and a telephone operator. See, if my dad had said, I'm the son of a sharecropper, they would have assumed that my dad would have known how to have grown cotton. And when my mom said, I'm the daughter of a milkman and a telephone operator, they would have assumed that she knew how to, well, work around the farm and how to use one of those newfangled telephones. What about you? What do you expect people to think of you because of your heritage, your family? the times you've lived through, your training, the letters before or after your name. How do you advertise that? What do you expect when you tell somebody, I'm the son of a carpenter, or the daughter of a telephone operator, or the son of a sharecropper, or a milkman? Have you ever introduced yourself as, hi, I'm a child of God? You see, one of the things people love to do, whether they are inside the church or outside the church, is proclaim why someone is a Christian or someone is not a Christian. And most often, it's a very specific behavior, attitude or action or belief that puts them into this category or that category. 
and the proclamation is usually very firm, leaving no doubts or wiggle room because thus says a very particular Bible verse. Back in the early 90s, shortly after I arrived, one of the pastors from another church on the island brought an elderly couple over to our Savior and said, Mitch, they're going to be a lot happier here because they were really struggling with all the changes that he had made at that congregation. Two years later, the husband died. Not long after that, she let me know that she would be joining him very soon. And so we started to plan her funeral, and she helped me write her sermon. She'd been very active for over 80 years in the Lutheran Church. She'd served in the LWML, various committees and district programs. She literally showed me boxes and boxes of awards and certificates and gifts that were given to honor her for all of her service. Quite often at a funeral, though, people get up and when they talk about the deceased being in heaven, they then immediately list all the things that person did during their life. And there's a definite connection between the things they did and that person being in heaven. Hold on to that thought for a moment. So back to Jesus' words. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I heard from my Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I got an email a few weeks ago about a pastor who in a sermon said that not everybody was a child of God, but only those who had very definitively accepted Jesus into their heart. I told this individual not to worry. This pastor was trying to assure his people because they could name the day and the time that they accepted Jesus as their Savior, that they were a child of God. And they were there definitely then separated from everybody else who could not name the day and the hour and the moment. She wasn't going to change his mind. She wasn't going to change that congregation because it was the foundation for that particular denomination. And so I told her, if this is going to be something, as it should be, that you're going to struggle with, you need to go find a different church. You did not choose me, but I chose you. He flips our natural, me-centered thought process on its head. And the purpose of this flip is to bring us comfort, to speak truth and grace into our life not to condemn us, because He speaks the truth in love. He does not choose us because we are perfect, or all the things we've done, or all the things we're planning on doing. He chose us because He loves us and calls us to be His own, in spite of our failures, our imperfections, and our sins. In the water of baptism, and for most Lutherans, this means when you were a tiny little baby that could only poop and cry and sleep. God chose you. I know we like to think that Jesus is God, and so He knows everything, and therefore He chose us because He knew all the things we were going to do, all the greatness that we were going to come into. So we earned our place in the family, and Jesus was just, well, kind of like charging it on a credit card until we could pay it off. But Jeremiah 1 and Psalm 139 say God actually chose us before we were born or baptized. And Ephesians 1.4 says, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons and daughters through Jesus, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Oh yeah, I know that God knows all of us. He knows everything about us. He knows what we're going to do and not going to do. But amazingly enough, he's got a different reason for choosing us as his own. Last week, as the water flowed over Ilana's forehead, I imagined all the possibilities of her future. All the amazing opportunities, the love, the grace, the hope that we're waiting for her because she is a child of God. And God chose her tiny, little, squirmy, wide-eyed baby, even, all she, even though all she could do was poop and cry and eat. She is completely and totally dependent 
and God still chose her. God doesn't want us to live our life in fear, hesitant about making mistakes, worried about what if we aren't good enough, living our whole life trying to say, okay, maybe just if I do just five more things, God will love me. We don't need to live our life only on this side of the street, never making a new friend or trying anything new. Jesus says he came so that we might have life and have it to the full. And while that isn't going to happen in its truest form until we are past this world and into the world to come, he says while he isn't giving us permission to sin wildly and just say, yeah, 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 Jesus has got it covered so it doesn't matter. Rather, he says, sin boldly, but trust in the grace of God more boldly still. It was Martin Luther that said that, not Jesus. But Luther was simply looking at the grace of God and saying, this is the way life can be lived. And by the way, if you don't know what it means to sin boldly and trust in the grace of God more boldly still, it's Luther's way of saying, if your heart and soul are seeking first the kingdom of God, you're going to sin. But God will forgive and love. And he'll be there for you no matter what. This isn't about us becoming perfect. This is about us growing closer to the heart of God. And by the way, when we get closer to the heart of God, it's amazing the impact it has on our life. So back to Frances and the funeral sermon that she helped me write. You should know that she had been the Sunday school teacher for the man who was the district president at the time. And I knew he was going to ask for a copy of the sermon. The message started off with, Frances loved God, but she never did anything in the church. Not in her family, not in her community. The list of her accomplishments, completely blank. Now she expected the family to start squirming at that point, and she said, Pastor, I hope they don't get up and interrupt everything. But then after a dramatic pause, I continued. But the list of things that Jesus did in her and through her is longer than the time that we have to speak. But here are a few that she was especially thankful to be part of, as Jesus allowed her to be the vessel that carried his grace, his mercy, his love, his peace into the world around her. Some of you know when somebody asks me what denomination I am, I usually don't give them the spiel about we're not a denomination, we're a synod, and it's a huge difference, even though all that's true. Instead, I tend to just say I'm a follower of Jesus who chooses to express my faith through Lutheran means, doctrine. And practice. But if I'm called upon to announce my faith, in other words, are you a Christian or not, rather than try to find a word or phrase or a metaphor that will be properly understood, it's a lot easier if I simply say, I'm a child of God. Anyone who has a child knows exactly what this means. Your child is imperfect, no matter how much you wish. They do not always do what you want. In fact, often they do the exact opposite. Sometimes, well, one minute they love you and the next they're running away. And yet, and yet they are still your child, and you still love them. So it is with God and me, and with God and you. Another reason I'm thankful we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not our work, it's the gift of God, is to know that as a child of God, there are things we just can't explain because we don't understand them ourselves. But it's an amazing way to live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.